The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustan Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome back, or welcome, to the Formed Book Club. We're spending a great deal of time, and it's worth every moment, in discussing G.K. Chesterton's In Defense of Sanity. The best essays of G.K. Chesterton, as the subtitle informs us, selected by Dale Alquist, Joseph Pierce, who's with us, and Aidan Mackey. And they said last week, because these are essays, but each essay is on a topic which well, often is very important. Uh, it, it requires more rumination, more reflection, more discussion, and uh, we're happy to do that. So we ended last time on the uh, bluff of the big shops, and I, I think we came to some kind of a uh, accommodation with each other on that, that we recognized uh, that sometimes big shops are all right, and most of the times they're not. But so we can we can move to the next essay. Is that correct? I'm happy with that. All right. The next essay beginning on page 144, is on architecture. Would either of you like to make I, I, a comment? I would, like to, I would like to read just the first two sentences because it makes me smile. And that seems like a good enough reason. <laughs> I, 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 can, I can understand why. <laughs> um, so it says, um, we, have all, uh, we have all of us been hearing for some time about the proposal to pull down the city churches some of us have a certain sympathy with the view that it would be much better to pull down the city. Uh, I sh- should say here, the reason that makes me laugh, he's, he's not talking about cities per se. He's talking about the city of London. Right. And, and the city of London is not the city of London. It's actually a district uh, within London. Uh, the, the two cities in London are the city of London, which is uh, St. Paul's is the cathedral, and the city of Westminster next to it, which is Westminster Cathedral, uh, where actually Westminster Abbey uh, is the um, is the cathedral, and then you've got the big conurbation, which is London. The city of London is the financial district. Uh, that that's the point here. And what he's putting down is it's a square mile. And the thing about it is that about uh, how the figures are, but something like half a million people work in that square mile from nine to five Monday to Friday, and about ten people live there. <laughs> that's that's why it's funny. But as long as we know he's not talking about cities per se, or even. London per se, but particularly the financial district known as the city. Well, yes, and he makes a point following that, that if you look at the ancient cities, what's left today, you know, the churches, the temples, the synagogues, and so on, that's what expresses the culture, you know, uh, know, people's view of life, whereas the buildings are more 
practical, so to speak, uh, more pedestrian. And, and they probably aren't built to last. I mean, we obviously had that disaster in Miami this week. Oh, and yes. We saw, we saw how poorly constructed the uh, the Twin Towers were. You know, if we talk about, you know, the, the sands of time, 500 years from now, how many of the huge uh, skyscrapers that are housing banks are still going to be there 500 years from now, whereas the churches that were built uh, of sturdier stuff will be? Well, that, well in fact, uh, our son... Our son, the artist who studied architecture for a time, he said that the um, modern buildings uh, are only built to last about 35 to 40 years, that the, that the, uh, the welds and the metal and all of these things that are keeping them up actually diminish rather quickly. And so... You're absolutely right, Joseph. These these things are not built to to withstand time. And to Father's point, on 145, Chesterton says that, yes, the religion, we generally find their religion, meeting other civilizations, more interesting than their commerce. And then he goes down and talks about the, uh, the bottom of the page, the merely commercial life of England becomes less and less English. And the material machinery of London is looking more and more like New York. And it seems likely that, as so often happened, things native and domestic will have to retire into a sanctuary. So, you know, this is, of course, written in, it was published in 28. I don't know when it was actually written. But, you know, if you look at the commercial districts of Singapore, Hong Kong, New York, London, they, that's right, they all look the same. They're all the same kinds of, temporary fleeting as fleeting and temporary as the money that gets exchanged in those places is yeah it's very prophetic of of globalism this uh this essay uh almost a century ago um and obviously the writings on the wall and Chesterton can see it yep and back to a previous point we both made about or you vivian at least about the the non-long lastingness of churches that are built that is, for me, on the West Coast of the United States, the great hope, because we went through a period of cathedral building in the 70s or 80s, a little bit before or after, in which architecture had to be signature. That is, an architect was given a commission to build a church or cathedral. It had to be unique, something which expressed him and his view. And so we had these horrible structures on the West Coast, starting with Los Angeles Cathedral, which I will not set foot in, it looks like a warehouse. It does express, you know, modern art and architecture. Even here in San Francisco, which I think is not terrible, but St. Mary's Cathedral is something you would never expect to see a parish church look like that, you know, imitate that. When you go to France, especially Germany to Italy, you have cathedrals, but they're kind of larger versions of what a church ought to look like. And <laughs> I think I've mentioned this already on, on our book club with a previous conversation. Your, your son, your younger son, Stephen, who became an architect, was in architectural school anyway. When he was a young boy and his brother Thomas, who's not an architect, but a very reasonable, rational guy, when they were young, 10 or 12, it was in 2000, and Pope John Paul II was having a new churches designed for the outskirts of Rome to celebrate the millennium. And they had the pictures of these various designs. 
And both your boys said, but they don't look like churches. <laughs> yes. And so then we go to Oakland. <laughs> Thank God that cathedral, which is very recent, is sinking into the mud of Lake Merritt, uh, both the parking lot and the cathedral. So that won't be around for too much longer. So we're hoping that maybe, you know, the generations coming after us will be able to pro provide churches which truly are, are models of places of worship and not of some architect's uh, ego. Well, yeah. interestingly enough, oh, I'm sorry, Joseph. I, I was just going to say that if you want buildings that last, my son who studied architecture said, you actually have to go back to building them in stone, that the stone masonry foundations of those buildings of the Middle Ages, that's the way you build a building to last. Yeah, right, right. Well, you, you, you quoted one or both of you from page 145, the top and the bottom. I want to quote something from the middle <laughs> because he, he talked about Moloch, you know, with the, where they sacrificed children to the god Moloch. He says, but the comparison of commercial and religious centers is connected with another question that's perhaps more immediately modern than worship of Moloch. He says, we've not got quite so far as reviving that sort of Eastern mysticism as yet. Yeah, Moloch, Eastern mysticism, right? You know, sacrificing infants to the God. Though there is no saying what we may, what we may come to eventually with a judicious combination of the neo-pagan nature worship and our efforts to restrict the population, like you say, he's writing a century ago, and he is telling us what we might end up with, namely abortion. Yeah, uh, and again, I, I think that, that that that's very prophetic of him. But you know, I I think that uh, even he didn't think we'd actually be as far down the uh, the, uh, the 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 abyss of the culture of death as we've as we've come in the last fifty years. Um, can I just say one other thing? We're not making much progress here, I know, but I do want to just mention at the bottom of page one hundred and forty-four. We're going backwards at the moment. <laughs> okay, we're going backwards. That's good. <laughs> um, says. Um, He's talking about the fire of London here. I have no immediate intention of setting fire to London or of attempting to repeat the great conflagration, which was recorded entirely wrong on the monument. The great conflagration is, of course, the fire of London. But I don't know if you know what the monument is. The monument is a, uh, it's just a... Uh, I, do, I do, but I want you to explain it. Okay. So basically, it's a, it's, like, it's a vertical column that you can actually walk up the middle of and go to the top. And it used to have four good views of London when before the skyscrapers. But it was allegedly built... If you, if you knocked it down the exact distance from where the fire is supposed to start, um, I think in Pudding Lane, but he said on it, this fire was started by the Papists. In other words, it was a, it was a Catholic conspiracy, which you know, very, very, very quickly everyone knew was a lie, um, and it was just uh, it was absurd, but nonetheless kept up there. And William Cobbett, you know, in his History of the Protestant Reformation, was one of the persons that led a campaign because he was Protestant, uh, very Catholic friendly, you know, that he actually was very instrumental in getting that uh, inscription, you know, blame it on the papists, removed from the monument. And the reason, Joseph, that I so brilliantly can say that I know that, I knew that, was because you described that in your wonderful manuscript on the history of Mary England, which we'll be publishing shortly. Your, mem your memory uh, commend uh, commends itself. Okay. That's a bad English for them. Never mind. Anything more on architecture? Onward to the essay on Shakespeare, and I wrote 
above that in my copy on page 149, can Joseph explain? Question mark. So, oh, go for it, Joseph. And by, by the way, Joseph, may I, may I guess that you were the one that selected this to be included? Honestly, can't remember for certain, but probably. Um, uh, but um, yeah, basically, he's reviewing a book by the Comtesse de Chambrun, and this was one of the uh, one of the pillars uh, upon which I uh, founded my own book, uh, The Quest for Shakespeare. Now, I make no pretense of doing anything but standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, um, and uh, she was a pioneering work. And you see that Chesterton, just through his instinct, I don't think reading this essay, he has much knowledge of, of Shakespeare's biography. But what he does know is when he's reading something which is quite clearly rational, uh, based upon evidence, um, and, and not talking rubbish like the Baconians, because an awful lot about uh, you know, today it's the Oxfordians, right? The Earl of Oxford wrote the plays. In Shakespeare's time, the fashion was that Francis Bacon wrote the plays, which is even more absurd because I um, can't think of anybody more diametrically opposed to, uh, to, to, to the, the, the Catholicism of Shakespeare's plays than Francis Bacon. We'll return to the Foreign Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, 
and Joseph Pierce. But so we got here uh, about two thirds of the way down, page 149. And this study seems to me to be one very valuable to literature and not like so many of the Baconian penny dreadfuls, in other words, junk, a mere insult to literature. Indeed, some Baconian books are quite as much of an insult to Bacon as to Shakespeare. So, yeah, he, he gets it. He gets it because he's Chesterton. I, I know he's not. You know, I think he probably most of what he knew about Shakespeare's biography, he learned from this book. But the point is that he could see that the book was a rational uh, exposition of a case. Yeah, he was he was very uh, kind towards her, or at least uh, I would say fair towards her, saying she had good notes and she did the research and she didn't seem like she was insisting on a position. But what you said earlier about his not being a an academic or a scholar on Chesterton, but he says about a third of the way down to that, page 149, I do not profess to know much about Shakespeare outside such superfluous trifling as the reading of his literary works. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we ought we, to we, be we, able we to learn so, a lot about right. an author by just reading his works. We really shouldn't need to delve too deeply in, you know, try to psychologize and all this kind of thing, which some, which some people try to do. But what I thought was so brilliant uh, to your point, Joseph, about Chesterton's appreciation of this Madame de Chambrun, she must've exposed in the book, something about the politics of Elizabethan England, which I'm sure Chesterton must've been somewhat acquainted with. But he just fastens right on that, on, on the beginning on the bottom of page 151, you know, when he talks about um, the kind of government under Elizabeth, and, and he concludes this with saying on 152 at the top, this nest of nasty plutocrats with Cecil in the midst of it counted among its enemies the greatest of Englishmen, meaning Shakespeare. So he... He did, and how much he already knew of the Tudor government yeah, before he, he, he read her book, I don't know. But yeah, he, he just has he, this honing device to just go right to the... Right. Chesterton wrote a history of England, you know, which is not great scholarship. He certainly, he certainly knew in broad strokes uh, what English history was, and he learned a great deal from, from Belloc, who knew in, in detail... Well, you know, he wrote a, he wrote a four volume history of England. Uh, what it was, so yeah, he certainly understood the Tudor times, and so he knows the backdrop in which Shakespeare fits. But what he did, didn't know, evidently, is Shakespeare himself. It's, except, of course, his works. And I agree with you. One way you can go know who Shakespeare is by reading his works. But um, but I think that he he just saw that this fit when you know, he read this and saw that well, the evidence is that Shakespeare was an enemy of uh, of of the Cecils and of uh, the Elizabethan spy network and the tyranny, uh, and that in itself speaks volumes. It does. It really does. Because a lot of people portray Shakespeare because he wrote the histories as legitimizing the Tudor reign. And, and I mean, that's the line that I got when I took Shakespeare in college. Well, may, may, I say, may I say here, Vivian, just as, uh, to, to address your earlier point, that the in 1599, the Bishop of, Archbishop of Canterbury, Whitgift, uh, and the Archbishop, Archbishop of London, Bancroft, persuaded Elizabeth's government to ban the uh, the publishing, either through printing or performance, of any his English history plays. 
And the reason for that was because they were quite clearly, a, uh, the, the, the history play was a veneer or a vehicle to, to, to talk about contemporary Elizabethan politics. So, for instance, when the Essex Rebellion in 1601, uh, on the eve of it, they, uh, they actually paid the, 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 the rebels under the Earl of Essex and the Earl of Southampton, Shakespeare's patron, was the Earl of Essex's right-hand man in that rebellion. They paid a theatre company to perform Shakespeare's Richard II in the hope that it would actually bring the mob round against the government. So, you know, so this is, and, and then so this Bishop's Band, that's why after that there were no more history plays by Shakespeare. Uh, no more English history plays by Shakespeare. What play does he write as soon as that band comes in? Julius Caesar, right? We can do the same thing. We can set it in Rome instead of England, but this makes no difference, right? Right. But you, you were saying something, Vivian, I think you didn't finish. No, that that's, I was just, uh, what fascinated me the most about this essay was that he honed in on that conflict between Shakespeare and the sitting government. And that's a point that Joseph understands and points out in his book but often is not the way Shakespeare is taught in school. In fact, it's taught the opposite, that because of the histories, he was somehow legitimizing the Tudors. And so in any case, to me, this nub of the thing is right where Chesterton goes, because he has that ability, right, to just so quickly apprehend the essence of a thing. That's his genius. Absolutely. But, but we don't have to worry anymore about how Shakespeare is taught in schools because he will not be teaching him anymore. Yeah, no. he's being canceled. Quite frankly, Father, they, they do it so abysmally, it will be a blessing. <laughs> so so well, then the, when he concludes it on 153, this is Chesterton at his best. Perhaps after all, that era really was the great spiritual battle. Right. So, somehow this gets glossed over the way Shakespeare is often taught. And so we have people like Joseph Pierce to thank to not let us forget the essential facts of the matter that make us realize what an epic battle that was and what side of it Shakespeare was actually on. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Ah, uh, now comes a chapter that always warms my heart when someone who really knows what he's saying and talking about uh, expresses views that conform with mine or that in, to which <laughs> mine conform. We, we just had, Joseph and I, well, you, Vivian, too, we just had a discussion about whether or not we should publish a new translation of Dante, which was essentially in free verse, that is to say, no discernible meter or rhyme, rhythm, and I was opposed to it because I don't like the idea of poetry trying to be presented in another language in a different form like that. But so these things he said in this chapter, I enjoyed very much. But I'll, I'll give the word to you folks first before I comment too much. Well, I love the fact that at the very end, Chesterton writes, this is page 158, I do not say there is no other way of producing such an effect meaning the effect brought about by rhyme and meter. I only ask, not without longing, <laughs> where else in this wide and weary time it is produced? So there's a kind of openness here that I appreciate that, well, maybe it's possible, but I haven't seen it because I have seen some modern free verse poetry 
that I liked very much. However, I would have to agree with you that, like, for example, T.S. Eliot. I think the man's a genius. I think he's worth the effort of reading. But how many modern free verse poets match his stature? Very few. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's the, the devil's in the detail there. I mean, I was going to say T.S. Eliot, to me, The Wasteland is one of the greatest poems ever written. And parts of it are, are in regular meter and rhyme, but certainly not all of it um, by any means. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixture or a mishmash of, of various different poetic forms. And I, I, you know, I, I, I agree with I don't like free verse, generally speaking. But I don't dismiss all of it because uh, uh, there is some. There are some beautiful poems out there that are written free verse. Um, but I do think, as a, as a as a tendency, it's been very destructive because it's basically meant anybody. I mean, I get poems all the time from Austin Review, uh, far more than we can publish, and some of them you just you know. I, I, if I'm not feeling charitable, God help me. You know, I write back and say, you know, you, you just if you just actually put this in regular sentences, right? This is prose. No, you've, the fact you just chopped it up into lines, you know, doesn't mean it's not prose. I mean, if you actually put it in, make it horizontal instead of vertical, you just sent me a paragraph. It's not a poem. Right. And I, Chesterton is kind of working on this idea of freedom here, that free verse, as opposed to, let's say, constrained poetic expression, is not really that free. Uh, and I, I like this example he gives on page 153 in the middle there. It does not liberate, that is, make free. Sorry, Father, can't be 153. It starts in 154. Oh, 55, 55, sorry. Okay, okay, all right. It does not liberate the soul so much when a man says, you always look so nice, <laughs> as when he says, but your eternal summer shall not fade. The first is an awkward and constrained sentence ending with the weakest word ever used, or rather misused, by man, that is, the word nice. And I love that when C.S. Lewis in the great, in uh, that he is strength, he has that, that institute of the evil ones. It's the N-I-C-E Institute, the National Institute for whatever it was. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's but going right. on, the second, that is to say, your eternal summer shall not fade, is like the gesture of a giant or the sweeping flame of an archangel. It has a very rush of liberty. I, I, asked, I highlighted exactly the same passage for this. That's beautiful. That's just in his best. And I wanted to give a tribute here to our deceased friend, Thomas Howard, a real gentleman, a real scholar, a man with great humor and wit, a, 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 a really a, an exemplary Catholic and Christian. But at the bottom here, he says, Chesterton, I always have had the fancy that if a man were really free, he would talk in rhythm and even in rhyme. His most hurried postcard would be a sonnet, and his most hasty wires like harp strings. And you get an email from Thomas Howard, and you had to pass it around, you know, or you talked to him on the phone. And it was it was like some of a literary, you know, literary gem. He was great. Can I, uh, can, I just say, can I just say something? I mean, you probably know this, and I've said it already. You're ostentatiously or something, but but you know, you know, you know the history, the etymology of the word "nice" to you. Uh, well, basically, the, the irony about the word "nice" and it is the nastiest word in the language, I think, is that if you said "have a nice day" to Chaucer, he'd punch you on the nose, <laughs> because of the modern word "nicius," 
which basically means nasty, the opposite of nice, as, as understood now, you know, is that has the same etymological roots. So when you say Chaucer, have a nice day, you mean have a nasty day, have an ischious day. And then in, in Middle English, you know, when, when Portia says, uh, use the word nice, it means fastidious. It means, you know, uh, night, as in nicety, right? Um, I don't have such time, I don't have time for such niceties, is what she's saying. And so the modern word nice means it has nothing to do with So in other words, one of these is a horrible word. It has no roots. I mean, it's cosmopolitan. It means something completely different now to what it meant, you know, in, in uh, middle English and, and early modern English. So when those people told me you're a nice guy, that really meant you're a nasty guy. I Now, now I understand. I, I, I get it now. <laughs> okay. uh, all right. I mean, other thing on this chapter was a, I mean, we could say more, but we, I suppose we do need to, to think about making progress. Is progress moving forward on, in pages, or is, is in progress going deeper into things? Well, he, do, he does mention, he does pluck a line from a Shakespeare sonnet, three lines from the bottom of page 157, Bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, which is an allusion by Shakespeare's sonnets, of course, to the, to the, dis, the destroyed monasteries. Um, the, the, the late ruined choirs, wait, the sweet birds sang the birds there, of course, being the monks. So there's a little bit thrown in there if you want some more. Well, uh, the next essay is turning inside out on education, women, and I would say homeschooling. And I think there's a lot that we need to say about that essay. It's also kind of a long essay. And therefore, I propose that we conclude this week's session at this point. And that, let's see, what does that mean for those who are trying to keep up? Well, if you read four more essays, you'll definitely, I think you'll be okay. We, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think keeping up has been an issue in this particular book. <laughs> <laughs> well, since, since we're ending then with that last essay, you know, if you, you, your praise of Thomas Howard's prose, if you think about it, when we love people's prose, it's precisely because it's bordering on the poetic. The more poetic it is, the more beautiful the prose is. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go the other way around. If what you want is beauty. Yeah. I, I completely couldn't agree more. For well, that, he, well, he, even, he even says that on page 155 towards the bottom there. It is thought right to discourage numbers of prosaic people trying to be poetical. But I think it is much more of a bore to watch numbers of poetical people trying to be prosaic. <laughs> yeah, but at the, at the end of the last week, you, you said to read up to the Jane Austen es essay, which is 38. So on the assumption they've done that, they're good for the next. That's the good. Next. All right. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you've stayed with us this far, but we've enjoyed it. So I hope you have, too. God bless you. And see you next week on the Formed Book Club. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.